I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. To some of the key people who have been active in our campaign, and I hope you'll be seeing, and I know you will be seeing more of them in the coming months as we roll on to victory here in California. So please, and before we get to some of our staff, let me introduce somebody I know you already know, my partner for the last 30 plus years, my wife, Jane Sanders. Let me introduce somebody I think you also may know. Uh, she is a co-chair of our national uh, campaign. She has been running all over this country, standing up for working people, low-income people, people of color. Please welcome Senator Nina Turner. Let me introduce to you a young woman who's doing a great job heading up our campaign effort here in California, Renee Spelman. And right here in the San Francisco area, somebody who has very is now leading up our San Francisco. Uh, effort who has been a champion of public education. Let's welcome Jane Kim. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists in a moment. Uh, but before I do that, uh, what I want to, no, no, before we begin, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm going to, I have the mic now, and I'm going to keep the mic. All right, the issue, okay, if you can't, if you can't, okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, can we get the lights on, by the way? Is that something that's possible? They don't work? There we go. No, that's not any better. That's <laughs> All right, I guess there aren't overhead lights. Okay, if you could dim those, please. Here's the point that I, I wanted to make today. We live in an unprecedented moment in American history. We have a president who is a pathological liar, who is a racist, who is a sexist, who is a homophobe, who is a religious bigot, and now I guess he's an anti-Semite as well. But above and beyond the disaster who is in the White House, there is an understanding that we must have. 
that our job is not just to defeat the most dangerous president in American history, it is to transform this country. And that, and that requires us, and this is my main point today before we get to the panel, it requires us to think big, not small. It requires us, you know, Nelson Mandela said something, and I always, I don't get it quite right. But what he said is everything, nothing is possible until it happens. You got that? Nothing is possible until it happens. And that means, that means if you think small, if you think that nothing will happen, be assured nothing ever does happen. If you have the courage to think big and to think about economic justice, and social justice, and racial justice, and environmental justice. If you think big, we make that happen. God did not create a system in which three people in America own more wealth than the bottom half of the American people. That was created by politics, and that can be undone by politics. It is not destined that the United States has to be the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. We can and will have a Medicare for all single-payer system. It is not destined that in California and throughout this country we have over a half a million Americans sleeping out on the streets. We can and will build the affordable housing, the low-income housing this country requires. It is not destined that millions of our people are working for 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour, we can and will raise the minimum wage to a living wage at least $15 an hour. It is not destined that politicians be able to take away a woman's right to control her own body. We will create a process by which that decision is a woman's decision and not a politician's. It is not destined, it is not destined that assault weapons are being sold all over this country, weapons designed to kill human beings in a military-style rapid way. We can and will end the sale and distribution of assault weapons.
Today, we are here to touch upon one of the major issues facing this country, and that is the crisis in higher education. And what that means is that, in my view, and I think the view of most people here, certainly our panelists, they understand, and I understand, that in an economy and a technology which is changing every day, if we are to have the best educated workforce in the world, we need to rethink what public education is. And that means it is no longer good enough for public education, free public education, to be from K through 12th grade. We need to make public colleges and universities tuition free. Four years ago, when I talked about that idea, it was perceived by the political establishment uh, and by the business establishment to be a radical idea. Well, because of the work of great people here in California and around the country, that idea is becoming less and less radical every day. Because of the work of Jane Kim and others, you now have a community college here in San Francisco, tuition free. And that's a big deal. And Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, in Tennessee, in New York State, all across this country, we are making significant progress. And last year, New York University School of Medicine announced that their medical school would be tuition-free. So when we talk about what it means to be an American, what we talk about an American right is, what I believe is that the right to get all of the education you need and you need in order to fulfill your dreams should not be limited by the income of your family. Now, some people say, Bernie, you know, your idea of making public colleges and universities tuition-free and then doing something else which is really important canceling all student debt in America. Well, people say, and we're going to be discussing that in a minute, people say, well, that's another radical idea. We can't afford it. Well, let me just say this. If we can afford to bail out the crooks on Wall Street, we can afford to cancel all student debt. If we can afford to give well over a trillion dollars in tax breaks under Trump to the 1% in large profitable corporations, we can afford to make public colleges and universities tuition free. 
The program that we believe in, making public colleges and universities tuition-free, significantly increasing Pell Grants work-study programs so that anybody in this country, no matter what their income is, will be able to get through college debt-free, debt-free, and cancel all student debt costs $2.2 trillion. That's a lot of money. I'll tell you how we're going to pay for it. We are going to impose a modest tax on Wall Street speculation. which will raise $2.4 trillion more than we need to do all of this. So today we want to focus, we want to focus on higher education. We want to focus on what it means to leave school deeply in debt and how it impacts so many people's lives. And we've got a great panel to do that. Let me uh, begin. Uh, by introducing Freedom Siom, who is a Filipino-American principal of a local high school, and he will tell you his story. Freedom. Thank you, uh, Senator Sanders and uh, Jane Kim and the team for the opportunity. Uh, to share my piece. So I wanted to go to college to avoid being a third-generation janitor. Uh, and contrary to my Filipino mother's wishes, I did not go to school to be a pharmacist. I decided to become an educator. And after my first year of teaching, my former wife was diagnosed with brain cancer, which led to my first default on an $80,000 student loan debt. Uh, medical bills backed up and stacked, and I, I did go bankrupt. So I left the classroom and started working in a school uh, as an administrator to help pay down my debt. And as a teacher, I always had a second job for additional income, so it wasn't that much of a change. Every day I worried, and I worried about the stress not only of my job, but whether or not I was going to be able to retire gracefully and um, about my loans again. This worry became depression, and I quit my job, and I defaulted one more time on my, on my loans. It took me about four years to come out of that slump, and I'm finally on a repayment plan that is currently at about $1,200 a month. And in February, my payments will increase to over $2,000. Uh, because of the defaults, my current uh, debt is at $115,000. Because I was about 19, 20 years old when I took out the debt, my parents were co-signers on the loan, and if I can't pay that back, their SSI and retirement could be in jeopardy. I considered leaving the country, but could not let lenders get garnish my parents' retirement. Uh, I am a, a, a very proud high school principal here in the San Francisco area. Represent, represent, Aaron. And I am committed to breaking the school-to-prison pipeline for black and brown children. As an educator, I am preparing my students to be college and career ready, but I don't want them to be saddled with the same debt I am in. And I love being an educator, but there are days that I wonder how much easier it might have been had I not went to college. Thank you.
I want to just pick up on one point that Freedom made. And this is quite unbelievable, but it's true. When young people, Freedom, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but when young people in high school know that they may leave school with forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in debt, and they know that many of the jobs out there are not paying them the kind of money they need. You got kids all over this country saying, I'm not gonna go to college. That true? All right. Think about it. Think about the insanity of a current system which tells a young man who, like my family, I'm the first, my brother and I are the first to go to college. You are the first in your family to go to college. You do the right thing. You got an education. You are now doing some of the most important work in America. You are an educator. Thank you. Should somebody who struggles from a working class family, your parents were janitors, to go to college, to devote yourself to the young people of your community, why in God's name should you have to deal with so much financial anxiety when you did exactly what you were supposed to do and what the society wants you to do? Throughout our lives, our elders have always told us education is the path to the future, right? And now we're telling millions of young people, if you don't have any money to get that education, you're going to have to pay off debt for decades. Brothers and sisters, that is not acceptable. And together we're going to end that absurdity. I now want to introduce Mia uh, Sacho. Mia is a nonprofit worker uh, helping young people find uh, employment uh, and dealing with their student debt. Mia? So I grew up in a small town in Texas, lots of farms, and both of my parents didn't go to college. but. They told me if I worked really hard, graduated high school, that they you know, didn't have savings, but they would do what they could to help pay for me to go to community college. Then, after I graduated high school, my parents cut me off because I'm trans. And they couldn't handle having a trans kid, even though I was their only son or daughter. I became homeless and I had to delay my education for a number of years, but eventually I went to City College of San Francisco, thank you, and I also transferred to be a part of the first trans-inclusive class at a women's university, Mills College in the East Bay. I am very happy with the education I received, but I am in over $30,000 in debt. That's not unusual. A lot of people are in a lot more debt than me. But what is unusual is that because I'm LGBT, um, my lifelong earning potential is much lower. Um, and over the past decade, as a trans person, I have had to spend over $10,000 on, oh, sorry, $30,000 on just my trans health care. That is a big burden to pay for. And 
I know that I also have to really lift up black trans people who are four times more likely to be unemployed um, than average people in America and two times more likely to be employed than average um, non-trans black folks. You know, I work at a nonprofit helping people find jobs, helping them do budgets, uh, improve their financial future. I know a lot of the tools to get out of debt and they're not working for me. I'm spending over 60% of my income just on rent alone. And I can't even make the minimum payments on my medical debt or my credit card debt. And I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been able to make a single payment on my student loan. I thought I was close to paying off, to start paying my student loan when I broke my arm while I was in between insurance and ended up with a $2,000 medical bill for one doctor's visit. I thought I was close to start making payments and then I had a housing emergency and like 63% of Americans, I did not have $500 or more in savings to cover this emergency. So I got a payday loan and I'm going to be paying that off for a very long time. You know, I can't dream of buying a home. I can't dream of getting married. I'm still single. Or, you know, I can't even afford a dog. So please, please, please don't tell me that skipping coffee is what is going to pull me out of poverty. I know, I know being broke, I know how to budget my uh, budget efficiently so that I take care of my needs, my priorities, and my values. Can the United States government say the same? We as a country need to stop spending $250 million on war every day and start, and start investing in our people and in our planet. Thank you, Mia. You know, Mia, Mia, touched on, Mia touched on an issue which we don't talk about enough, which is omnipresent, exists all over the place, and that is people get caught into one trap, fall into another trap, fall into another trap. So you went to a payday lender. How much was your interest rate, do you know? Too much. Okay, too much. I'm sure it was. But that's what happens. When you're poor, and you desperately need money, then the system takes advantage of you and charges you outrageous interest rates. And you're in debt to that payday lender forever. Your credit is shot, and on and on it goes. So Mia, thank you for what you are doing. Uh, let me now... Let me now introduce Gabriela Lopez who is the youngest ever and first Spanish-speaking member of the San Francisco Unified School Board. Gabriela. Hi, everyone. I've been in public education for over 10 years as a classroom teacher, a prison educator, an arts instructor, and now on the board which is an unpaid elected official position. My concerns with navigating the higher education system began in elementary school when I first dreamt of becoming a teacher. As a student learning English, 
I wanted to be an educator because students needed to have models who understood what it meant to be first generation and what it meant to be low income. I was the first in my family to go to college and I did not have the support or understanding of navigating that because my parents didn't have the tools to guide me. My parents' working day began at 4 a.m. and for my father, who was a truck driver, extended into the evening. Lack of good neighborhood schools meant my commute began at 5.30 in the morning to the affluent communities where my mom cleaned houses. That work ethic got me through eight and a half years of schooling and a master's in education while working two to three jobs. But I still landed, <laughs> thank you. I still landed in $80,000 in student debt. And that is more than a teacher's salary who has been working for over 10 years. High monthly debt on top of high rents in the Bay Area is so concerning it can impair our well-being. I've experienced many mental health issues due to financial stress that I've had to suppress when entering the classroom. I'm thankful for different services to help with money management, including weekly food pantries and home energy assistance program, programs, but I had to cash out my teacher retirement savings in order to help with my current financial load. Canceling student debt would change my life forever. Let me now introduce uh, Damaris Bonner, uh, who attends, I'm going to mispronounce this, Notre Dame de Namur University, where she is the Black Student Union President and has already incurred $35,000 in student debt. Damaris? I don't like microphones. Growing up as a black girl in San Francisco, I saw a massive wave of gentrification and systematic inequalities that affected me and my surrounding community. However, I didn't want to let these scenarios define me. I wanted to fight for social justice, and I knew that the most powerful tool in order to do so was a higher education. I'm currently enrolled at Notre Dame Denham University, where I'll be a junior come Monday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I arrived at this university because they offered me a, a wonderful financial aid package, but it still was not enough. I sit before you with $35,000 of debt. I sit here terrified of what my future may hold. I want to go on and obtain my master's or JD, but I'm worried about the amount of debt I'll incur. I'm worried about the financial constraints I'll face, and I'm worried I won't be able to afford living in my home state, California. We've grown up being told that a college education was a ticket to success, but in reality, it's a ticket to struggle. It makes no sense that we invest in weapons and bailout corporations who don't care about my community or those who are marginalized. Please. Right. Please understand, when you make college affordable, you allow for people who look like me to have dreams, to envision a bigger society. We are the future of America, but we are drowning in debt.
We are the future of America, but we are drowning in debt and we need help. So help us dream of a better future. Thank you. Before we open it up to questions and comments, uh, let me just say this. If anybody thinks that what we're talking about today up here is radical, then you don't know what's going on around the rest of the world. If you go to Germany right now, how much does it cost to get a higher education? If you go to Scandinavia, how much does it cost? And here is something not widely talked about. Fifty years ago, in the great state of California and the great state of New York and other areas, great universities, public universities and colleges were virtually tuition free. So we have got to ask ourselves, how does it happen fifty years ago this country could afford to provide opportunity, virtually free college and graduate school to its people and today increasingly that is becoming unaffordable and leaving people like this deeply, deeply in debt. Change never takes place unless people are prepared to fight for it. Change never takes place unless people have a vision of where we want to go. And all we are saying today, all we are saying today is that every person in this country, regardless of his or her income, has the right to get a higher education. Maybe it's college and university, maybe it's going to a training school where you learn how to be a carpenter or a sheet metal worker. But whatever it may be, financial impediments should not stop you from fulfilling your dream. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. So let's open it up. Do we have, uh, we have some microphones here? Staff, we've got mics. All right. All right, raise your hand or stand up because it's kind of hard to see from here. Okay, where's the mic? Where's the mic? All right, we don't have another mic. Okay. See, we raised millions of dollars for the campaign and we can't afford a microphone. All right. Here you go. You got one there? All right, do we have a person on this side? Okay, we do have mics. Okay. All right, I see a person stand up right here, young man. Yeah, stand up. Let's get him a mic. Uh, hi, Senator Sanders. Thank you hi. so much for coming out to San Francisco. Uh, so some of your most popular positions have been your college for all and debt forgiveness plans. And while those are very crucial steps in fixing our broken education system, I'm curious about your plan for dealing with our incredibly corrupt and biased admissions process. As a student who has recently graduated high school and has gone through the college admission cycle, I can tell you firsthand how time-consuming and stressful it is, as well as how heavily it favors the wealthy and privileged students. While the open bribery of the college admission scandal earlier this year is certainly a very blatant example of how the wealthy game the system, 
it still only uncovered a tiny portion of the larger structural issues at play. So as president, how would you help level the playing field for all students so they could be truly admitted to college based on their merit and not just based on their privilege that they inherited? Good question. I think as I understand your question, um, you know, again, I'm a first generation college student in my family, but if my dad went to Harvard or to Yale, I would have a leg up on you getting into that school. Is that right? All right, and I think we need to sit down uh, with the presidents and the leadership of colleges and universities all over this country and end certain universities being the universities of, how shall we say this, prestige and um, wealth. And I think we need to make sure that the doors of all universities are open to all people, regardless of income, based, as you say, not on who their parents were, uh, but on their abilities. So we're going to try to do that. Okay, let's go from, we're going to go from right to left. I see a hand right there. Yeah, sir. All right, ma'am. Yeah. Hi, I'm Noemi Ziegler, and I love you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inspiring millions and millions of people. I have two questions. I'll try to make it quick. One is, in the next presidential debates, will you take it? Will you let everybody know that Joe Biden was responsible for uh, making it harder for students to discharge their bankrupt uh, through bankruptcy? Yep. Um, and the second one is I'm a part-time. I'm an adjunct professor, and I'm uh, teaching at two colleges, but. There's no job security, and I just lost two of my classes at, with no notice. Um, my question is, a lot of times I don't hear um, the issue being addressed that adjunct professors don't qualify for loan forgiveness because if you're because we're struggling to, um, usually we're not allowed to work more than, let's say, part-time. So we never qualify for loan forgiveness, even after like 25 years consecutively of teaching because um, you have to meet a certain requirement every month of hours. So I just wondered if that's something well, that could I, I think you touched on, the answer is on the first, I think what she is saying is that among other things, uh, Joe Biden voted for a very bad bankruptcy bill, right? Which did some really bad things for working families in this country. But the second point, I have been astounded. I have sat down with adjunct faculty in various locations in the country. And I don't know if people here know it, I mean, they are being treated like Walmart employees, often having no guaranteed income, uh, often not being able even to get the health care that they need. There is a movement all over this country to do away with tenure tracks, to treat people simply as part-time employees at low wages. Am I right? All right. I mean, what we have got to do, if we're going to have the best educated workforce in the world, we have to honor our educators and give them the security and the respect that they need. So this is an issue that needs a, I mean, this is a big, big issue that's going on from coast to coast. But obviously, we want our faculty to be secure in their positions. We want them, if they earn tenure, to have tenure, and we want them to have the kinds of security and 
income that they need to be order, in order to be able to do their job. So thank you very much for raising that issue. All right, let's get a question from right here. Okay, uh, yes, ma'am, right here, right up front, yes. Here's a microphone coming. The microphone's not on. No, you're going to need a mic. Not that loud. Okay. Hi, Senator Sanders. My name is Paula Salemi. I'm from your generation. What about unions? Unions used to be strong. What's your plan to make unions no. strong? Well, if you go to my website, where we have all of our programs outlined, you will find that we have introduced the most comprehensive and progressive worker union legislation in the history of this country. And what, it, and what we intend to see in my first four years is a doubling of the number of union membership, un, people in unions in this country, the doubling. And we do that in a couple of ways. Right now, the truth is there are many millions of American workers who want to f join a union, but it is very hard now for unions to do the organizing that they should be doing because of uh, opposition from employers, illegal opposition. So what we say is if 50% of workers in a unit plus one sign a card, that's it, sign a card, they have a union. And if an employer refuses to negotiate a first contract with that union, there will be severe penalties placed on that employer. And thirdly, our legislation, among many other things, does away with Section 14B of Taft-Hartley, which allows for the creation of right-to-work states. We do away with that. Okay, let me get a hand over here. Okay, I see a woman in the blue right there. Yeah, blue sweatshirt, blue t-shirt. Straight back, straight back, yeah. Yep, that's it. So I um, heard recently that- hold, hold that mic close to your mouth. Um, so I heard recently that Trump wants to roll back uh, protections for LGBT people, and that's terrifying, because I'm a trans man. So I was wondering, would you pass the Equality Act day one through an executive order? Yes. yes. Okay, let's go to this point. All right. No, sir. A lot of people. Okay. All right. Uh, all right, you got a hand right here. The young man, the gentleman red. Yeah. No, give it to the gentleman. Hi there. Red. I'm no. Andrew. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. It's nice to meet you. I was just wondering about the future. Since, you know, we're worried about, you know, money and, and what's and so forth and debt. Um, I was just thinking, how we could we get free for all? You know, like uh, free food, uh, free school, free everything. You know, like uh, yeah. maybe inventing like uh, some sort of, you know, robotic uh, raise a farm. They create that. They then they bring it over to the grocery store, and that's it. We don't need to pay them anything. You know, think about those little things. Those little things and other things that we could do, where like technology could help. 
you know, everything. I mean, where we don't have to pay for anything. Do you know what I mean? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Like, later on in the future, just free everything. Do you see what I mean? Well, thank you. You did a hell of a job interpreting that. That was pretty good. Thank you. All right, look. Now, I don't believe in everything being free, but this is what I do believe. And this is important. I believe that as human beings in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, I do believe that every person in this country is entitled, underlined, to a decent standard of living. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean? It means that as Americans, we are entitled to health care as a human right. It means that as Americans, as we are discussing today, we are entitled to quality, universal, universal and affordable child care. We're going to put a heck of a lot more money into public education, raising teachers' salaries, putting money into Title I schools. And as you heard today, we're going to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and cancel student debt. I do believe... I do believe that in America, the richest country in the history of the world, people should not have to pay, as we heard today, 50% of their limited incomes on housing or sleep out in the street. So we're going to build affordable housing because the people are entitled to affordable housing. I do believe that when you are old, you have the right, underlined, to retire with dignity and security. Okay. So those are the kinds of human rights. We believe that economic rights are human rights, that if you go out and you work, you have a right to earn a living wage, not a starvation wage. So. That's the kind of direction we are moving in. All right, let's get a question. I see a person right there with a Bernie sign. Yeah, right on the uh, aisle. Yes. Okay. Hi, Bernie Sanders. Thank Hi. you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for coming here to San Francisco. Hold that mic close to your mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I have two questions for you. I'm going to make it quick. How are we going to address climate change with capitalism still in place while capitalism caused climate change? The second question is... Um, it's more of a comment, but we must abolish ICE, and how are you going to address police brutality? Police brutality? Police brutality. I think I got the questions. Look. In terms of climate change, and I'm sorry I didn't mention that in my opening remarks, we just, uh, just yesterday, as it happens, uh, I was in Paradise, California. And all of you, all of you are aware of the unbelievable tragedy that took place in a town of 26,000 people, where 86 people died, where 18,000 buildings were destroyed, resulting in $16 billion of damage. And I went to Paradise, we had a town meeting in Chico, to talk about the absolute necessity for bold, aggressive action now to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel 
to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Now, I want to just say on this issue, I just want to say on this issue, this is not an issue where we can nibble around the edges. What the scientists have told us, as clearly as they can, is that we have fewer than 12 years to transform our energy system, not only in America, but around the world, or else there will be irreparable damage. And we're talking about rising sea levels. We're talking about the acidification of the ocean and all that that means. We're talking about more drought, more floods, more extreme weather disturbances. We are talking in all parts of the world about people who are no longer able to find clean drinking water or land to till their crops, which results in mass migrations and national security issues. We have a global crisis. Tragically, we have a president who doesn't even understand the nature of the crisis and denies its reality. As president, what I will do is not only acknowledge the reality we're going to transform our own energy system and lead the world, bring the world together in combating climate change. Okay, uh, I think we got a hand right there, that gentleman, yeah, yeah. Hi, hello, my name is Omri, I'm here all the way from Israel, and I have a comment. Uh, sometimes you're asked about Israel in the media, and maybe portrayed as critical of Israel or anti-Israel. I'm also critical of my government, uh, and I want to tell you that... Uh, there are people in Israel who, there is a left wing who would like to see you elected as president. Uh, who would like to see uh, a just solution uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and we're yearning for a political revolution similar to what you're bringing about here. So thank you. Just let me say a, a brief word on thank you for your remarks. Look, all that I want is for the United States to create a level playing field in its treatment of Israel and the Palestinian people. Israel has the right to live in peace and security. The Palestinian people have a right to live in peace and security. And your point, your point is well taken. There is enough blame to go around on both sides. And the job of the United States government is not to be one-sided in terms of its approach to the Middle East, but to bring both sides together and to hammer out a just and fair compromise to the situation. Okay. okay. Yeah, young man right there. Yes. Hi, Senator Sanders. Uh, thank you for being in San Francisco. I missed you in my hometown of Sacramento last night, but thank, thank you for you. being here. Um, earlier, you talked about the bailout of Wall Street after they wrecked the economy and then made themselves rich with a taxpayer-funded bailout. 
Uh, you also spoke about your plan to place a speculation tax on Wall Street to pay for free public universities and a yep. student loan bailout or uh, student debt bailout. Uh, for some people, uh, and at times myself included, it's hard to conceptualize how concentrated wealth has become in this country um, and then who plans like the speculation tax would affect. Um, can you speak a little bit more to your plan to tax Wall Street speculation um, and how policies like these can help us achieve uh, more equitable wealth distribution in this country? Good point. Look, it's not a radical idea. The idea, this is not a radical idea. The idea of putting a tax on Wall Street speculation does a couple of things. First of all, it raises $2.4 over a 10-year period, which, as you indicate, we use to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and cancel student debt. But the other thing it does is it tampers down the kind of speculation which is so dangerous for our economy. High-speed trading, for example, is not a good thing. And I would tell you that last year, Wall made uh, over $100 billion in profits. And one of the things that we are looking at at Wall Street, and will do, when you look at the power structure of America, you have to look at Wall Street. You've got a half a dozen major banks there that have assets of over $10 trillion, more than half of the GDP of America. They got us into the last terrible economic recession in 2008. Right now, three out of the four major banks are larger today than they were back then. In my view, we have to break these large banks up. Okay. Okay. I think I see a woman right here. Yeah, ma'am. Hi, Bernie. I Hi. love you, too. Um, I just wanted to thank you for standing with Standing Rock before it was popular. I want everyone to know that Bernie... Before it was on the media, Bernie was there defending us. Thank I'm Akama Pueblo. And um, also that I was at your rally at the Yakima Reservation and that Bernie actually did rallies at the Native American Reservations. And I hope that you will do that this time because like, we still don't have drinking water in Flint, but the Native American reservations are in deplorable Absolutely. conditions and we need drinking water and preservation and voting rights and thank you for caring about thank you. the indigenous community. You know, thank you very much. You know, some candidates spend their lives running around to wealthy people's homes and doing fundraisers. We don't do that. We really don't. And that gives us you know, our campaign exists because I don't know, we've got a couple of million contributions averaging $19 a piece or something like that. But I say that because it gives us the time to go to parts of the country and meet with people that historically many candidates have not. And one of the people, one of the people in this country who have been ignored for so long is the Native American people. And we intend to change that. I don't, you know, I don't have to give anybody here a history of the terrible, terrible, terrible things that have been done to the Native American people from the day the first settlers came into this country. Their sovereignty has been taken away. The right to control their own land has been taken away. There are reservations right now 
where the life expectancy of people on that reservation are lower than in poor third world countries. Their healthcare system totally inadequate. Large corporations are coming into their land extracting minerals. Their educational system is not what it should be. Their healthcare system not what it should be. So my promise to you is that we are going to involve the Native American people in helping them, working with them to determine their future. Okay, let me go back here. Okay, I see a hand right there, the second row. We'll do about two more questions. I apologize, we gotta get on a plane fairly soon. Hi, Senator, Rocky Fernandez from Hayward, California. You've, uh, you mentioned a lot of rights and economic rights. Yes. You even produced an uh, economic bill of rights yes. through your campaign. And um, so that things can't be undone, does it make sense to start to move and put economic rights in our constitution like many others have? Yeah, I think it's something we very well might want to think about. In other words, yes, the answer is you raise a very good question. What we as Americans have been conditioned to think of is you've got freedom of speech. Very important. You got freedom of religion. You got freedom of assembly. All of the important political rights, many of which Trump is trying to take away, but they exist in our Constitution. And you're making an important point. Is the right to a job a basic American right? I think it is. Is the right to health care a basic American right? Is the right to affordable housing a basic American right? Is the right to clean drinking water? So. In one way or another, I mean, you raised the right question, but I think we have got to get the American people to understand that economic rights are human rights, and they've got to be guaranteed. Okay. I see a hand. woman right here. Yeah. Hi, Senator. Thank you so much for coming. Um, in an article written by Jasper Burns for Commune Magazine, he writes an in-depth article about the Green New Deal and the massive undertaking it would be. Um, the article ultimately outlines that we cannot have a Green New Deal and live as we do. Um, American society and that of many industrialized nations is frankly unsustainable. Um, my question for you is how would you prepare the American people for a complete lifestyle shift in order to save the planet? Well. The program that we announced just yesterday, which as I mentioned is the most comprehensive effort to combat climate change in the history of this country, deals with that. But this is what it does say. It says that if we are to save this planet for our children and our grandchildren, we must transition out in a very short period of time away from fossil fuel. And when we do that, by the way, I mean, the positive side of that is you're going to create 20 million jobs, okay? And you're going to have not only a non-fossil fuel economy, but a cleaner economy. You know, somebody just wrote an article, and I had, you know, it's a, this is a long paper, covers a zillion of issues. And it turns out that one of the small things we put in, in there would be fairly revolutionary. Right now, many of the children go to school in diesel school buses. Well, it turns out that that diesel fumes are not good for children. 
you electrify school buses all over this country. You create jobs building those buses, and kids get to school in a much cleaner and healthier environment. All right. All right, we have got to get going. I got a plane to catch uh, in, a, in a bit. I'm sorry, yeah, I just can't do it all. All right, I just, uh, I want to, let me conclude by thanking our panelists because and you all know that when they got up here and, and speak, they're not just talking about four people. They are representing tens and tens of millions of people who are experiencing the same problems that they are. So I thank them for their courage getting up here and speaking. What our job now, it seems to me, is that we have the issues that working families all over this country believe in. We have the answers to the problems facing so many of our people. And what our job right now is to stand up to Trump's divisiveness, his desire to divide us up based on the color of our skin or where we were born or our religion or our sexual orientation or whatever it may be. Our job is to come together around an agenda that works for all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. So, thank you all for being here. Let's go forward. Let's defeat Trump. Let's transform this country. Thank you.